We are here in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, and as we continue through, this is not that um, uh, uh, easy, fun passage, if there's such a thing as a fun passage. This is not the passage that anybody picked in seminary to preach in preaching lab. I'll just say that. I don't think that's ever happened. It's, it's probably one of the most confronting, not comforting, but confronting texts in the New Testament. And, and so, but this is a word we need. This is a good word from God that, that points us to Christ. Remember, this is what 1 Corinthians is all about. It's, it's, it's in this letter, Paul wants us to think about everything in life through the lens of the gospel, through the, the message of Christ crucified. And this messy issue in the church at Corinth is no exception. And listen, all of our messy issues in the church, they're not an exception either. He wants us to see it all through that lens. And so this is what we're going we're, we're gonna to do today in this passage and what Paul's doing for us. Listen, we often say, and I know I've quoted this, that the church is a hospital for sinners, not a museum for saints. I have no idea who first said that. I have heard it attributed to dozens of people. And so please don't post it on Instagram and say that I, I came up with that. But, uh, but what, what that's communicating is, is that there should always be this abundance of grace for those in the church who are struggling with sin. Uh, the, the church should be this, this place where struggling sinners can find grace and forgiveness and patience and hope and encouragement and loving rebuke and help to grow and to change. And so, sadly, obviously, this is not always the case. This is not always the reputation that churches have. Christians are often actually afraid to be honest about their sin in, in the church because it feels like a cold and stuffy museum for saints. That's the perception. And and so certain sins tend to be covered up or, or, or never discussed in churches. And so there's, there's shame when someone is caught in a particularly embarrassing sin or even confesses to it. Um, you know, it, maybe people just are shocked and they, they don't know how to handle that. Or, or, or that person's kind of marginalized or, or even shunned. They're, nobody's able to or even willing to engage with that person and walk alongside them to help them. They don't know how to. And, and, and so instead, there's maybe harsh treatment or just kind of hypocritical, self-righteous judgment. And sadly, that's just not uncommon, even in solid churches. And so the church should have this welcoming posture toward sinners. And it's not, though, because we have a low view of sin. It's because we have this lofty view of Christ and His, and his work on the cross. That's, that's why that's the case. In fact, churches that are truly hospitals for sinners, we have an enormous view of, of sin. That, that, as we're working to triage and help sinners change, we, we have this huge view of the awfulness and the, and the destructive power of sin because we see it up close all the time. But we see ourselves not as, as better than critics of sinners. We see ourselves as actually wretched and redeemed chiefs of sinners. That's a very different thing. And so all that said, hospitals for sinners, as churches are intended to be, they're, they're not, though, unconcerned about the potential for contamination and the, and the, the potential spread of deadly sin within a church. Just like hospitals aren't unconcerned about that in time of viruses like this. Because, because of our high view of sin and our high view of Christ, when someone just really spurns God's grace, His transforming grace, when someone hardens their heart, refuses to face 
their sin when confronted rebelliously lives as a law unto themselves, then that person actually becomes dangerous to the rest of the, quote, patients in the hospital for sinners. And the loving thing, the proper thing to do is to remove that person from the fellowship of the church. Now, those are not contradictory realities. And that's the exact situation that Paul is confronting the Corinthian church about. And so we're going to take the whole chapter today, all 13 verses, and the few minutes we have, we're going to make it. And, and so now there are all kinds of deal, details within this passage that scholars spend time debating. And there's some translation challenges. We're, we, we, we won't be able to address all of those interpretive challenges. But even so, the, the main idea, the, the, the clear point, uh, the point of the passage, it's very clear. And, and the big idea that we could put, put on over this whole text is this, is that we must take sin in our church seriously because we take Christ in a sacrifice seriously. That's, that's the heading. And so four statements to, to build that out in these verses as we see this develop in, develop in Paul's words here. First, our church body is not immune to serious sin. It's not immune to serious sin. So Paul wastes no time buttering the congregation up and he's kind of preparing them for... He cuts to the chase. He, gets, he puts the spotlight right on this ugly, awful ongoing sin in the church there. Look at verse 1 again. It is actually reported. Word got to Paul. Um, And we don't know how, but it's there. And it's probably because this was well known. It was open within the church, within the community. But it's reported that there is sexual immorality, porneia, that's the Greek word, among you and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans. For a man has his father's wife. So this is open and blatant immorality, incest. And it's not being carried out in secret behind closed doors. It's, it's wide open. It's ugly sin. Not that there are you know, sins that are pretty or acceptable, but, but in this case, it's something it's not even okay in that kind of cesspool of Corinthian culture. They, would, they, would, they were just as shocked by this as, as anybody would be. And so, so this member of the church there, This man who's a professing brother in Christ. He's engaged in sexual immorality with a woman who's presumably not a believer because she's not removed from the church. She's not part of the church. Who's likely his stepmother. So this is not a gray area. There's no fuzziness about this. This is reprehensible. And, and, it's, and it wasn't a one-time fling. This was habitual, ongoing sin. And it's still going on as Paul writes this letter. And he's already written another letter we're going to see addressing this. And so the grammar is very specific here. He, to say that he has another man, his father's wife, it's, it, it, that grammar of that indicates present, ongoing uh, sexual relationship with her. So we're talking persistent, obstinate, flagrant, defiant, unrepentant sin here. Now that's bad, isn't it? But it's really not the point of the passage. It's not his focus here. Later in chapter 6, he's going to speak very directly about the the problem of sexual sin. But here, there's something even more troubling to Paul that's on his mind. And it relates to this, obviously. But this is the big issue. is that the church knows all about this and is doing nothing. Nothing. Look at it, verse 2. And you are arrogant. You're arrogant. 
He doesn't say you're ignorant. He says you're arrogant. They know. They, they understand this. It's that word, puffed up. We've seen this. We saw this in chapter 4. This word is used seven times in the New Testament. Six of those seven are in 1 Corinthians. In, they have this inflated view of themselves. Verse 6, he's going to say, your boasting is not good. And so it's unclear whether their boasting and their arrogance is, is because of this immorality or in spite of it. In other words, are, are they puffed up with pride because they're so accepting of this man and of this sin and so welcoming of this incestuous man? That may be it. I don't think that's... I think it's that they're just so full of themselves and their power and their wisdom and their eloquent words and their giftedness, all of those things that Paul's been talking about in the earlier chapters of this letter and we'll continue to talk about later. And, and, and so they just sort of tolerated. They knew it was wrong, but, but that they just kind of turned a blind eye. And so Paul is absolutely beside himself here with this, this glib smug tolerance of this flagrant sin. Brothers and sisters, listen. We are not, we are not above being arrogant and boasting about our strengths while being blind or tolerant of gross, persistent sin in the church. Maybe not incest. Paul, I think, is going to a very extreme example. But look at what he says later. If you, we read a moment ago. Greed. Idolatry. Syncretism. Where you've you got God and. Trusting in God and. Hoping in God and. Drunkenness. Addictions. This is rampant right now in the culture. And I don't doubt it's rampant in the church right now. Over these last five months reviling, angry, abusive words, swindling, deceiving to take things that aren't yours. We're not immune, church. We're not immune from the, from the threat and the potential for serious sin. And, and so this is what he says, ought you not rather to mourn? You should be grieving, weeping. The word here is it's wailing when someone has died. You're arrogant, and why aren't you mourning? And this is the and it's with this attitude of mourning, not this arrogant smugness that characterized them, that he tells them that they should have done what already what they're not doing. And he says, Let him who has done this be removed from among you. Remove this man from the fellowship of the church. And then he goes on to say what that means. Verses three to five. This is the second development here of this idea. We have to take sin serious in the church because we take Christ and the sacrifice seriously. But this, we must take serious sin seriously. You're going to hear the word serious a lot. All right? So just be okay with that. Verse 3 and 5. So, so while the Corinthians, they've been ignoring this problem in their arrogance, Paul says, I've already pronounced judgment. And he expects him to follow suit. So verse 3, For though absent in body, I am present in spirit. And as if present, I've already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present, with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. All right, this is, these are the verses. There are loaded words and phrases here 
that you can probably already tell that, that, that are crying out for lengthy explanations and a lot of ink spilled here. And we just, we won't have time for that. If you've got questions, please feel free to talk to me. But the main point is very clear, again, so don't get sidetracked by all those questions. The gathered community, the church, this local church is invested with the power of the Lord Jesus, the risen Jesus, to remove the obstinate offender from the fellowship. That's what he's saying. And notice, it's not, the, it's not the church's own authority. It's not the elders' authority. It's not the authority of the Constitution or the bylaws of the church. It is, it is by gathering in the name of the Lord Jesus. We are, we are to exercise his authority in obedience to his commands, doing this in the manner that he's prescribed. And so I, I know churches have, have misused um, this matter of what we call church discipline, and, and people have been hurt and abused by that, by it not carrying out really with the authority of Jesus, but in an authoritarian way by church leaders. That's not what's being, what he's calling for here. And also, no, it's carried out when the church is assembled. It's when they're gathered together on, on Lord's Day for worship. That's the idea. That, and, and again, this is again, just one little of, of hundreds and hundreds of in, uh, indicators we can see in the New Testament of the importance of the Lord's Day gathering. And I know we're in strange times and some are having to be away from our weekly gatherings, but, and I'm thankful for Facebook Live, you who are tuning in, um, and, and, but even this, and, and you know it if you're tuning in, it's not a one-to-one substitute. You're not just missing a little when you miss being in person, you're, you're, you're missing the intention of it, and, and so uh, we, we miss you, and we, we look forward to be able, when, we can, when you can be back, and so I just pray that nobody will grow comfortable with this. We who are in person and you who are tuning in online, we want to be together as a church. And, and so we pray the Lord would speed that along. All right, that's a side note. But he says, when you're assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, he says, what this is instruction, deliver this man to Satan. All right, now I know you're just dying for this, but let me just sum it up in a sentence here. But what he's saying is by excluding this man from the fellowship, the fellowship of the church, he, it's placing him outside the sphere of God's redemptive protection in the community. It, it, it's, it's ejecting him into, into Satan's domain, which is the world. It's, just, it's an expression for removing him from the church. And what happens there? It's, it's for the destruction of the flesh. Now, again, another interpretive challenge here. It could mean the destruction of the physical body in a, in a disciplinary way, like Ananias and Sapphira and Acts 5. I tend to think it, it's, the, it's the flesh, not the physical flesh, but that, that, that old nature, the fleshiness of, of, of man. So Paul hopes that the church's expulsion of this, of this sinner, this immoral, immoral man, it will lead to this result, that his, his fleshly passions and desires will be put to death. Like the prodigal son will come to his senses. Um, uh, there's a passage in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, actually in chapter 2 and chapter 7 both, where some make the case that this is the same individual here where Paul's saying, welcome this man back. And there's a lot of indicators that it may be the same person. And, and so that's the, the desire. Whatever's, what, what is clear is Paul's purpose here. It's, it's, it's not punitive, it's remedial. It's, the goal is restoration of this person. And so you see that, so that his purpose so that his spirit might be saved in the day of the Lord so all right this is the idea the church family we have to take serious sin seriously we have to take all sin seriously but 
as, he, as he's giving instruction here. It's not optional. It's essential for us. We do so humbly. We do so in light of God's amazing grace towards us in Christ. We do so according to the Lord's clear instruction. We're not making it up as we go. So, so we need to read, study, meditate upon passages like Matthew 18 and to give us these instructions of the Lord and, and apply that together in obedience to the Lord and out of love for his church. We're not bouncers that are you know, trying to rough up the sheep as we kick people out. We are, we are we're to be shepherds trying to bring in wandering sheep. And when the sheep return, when the prodigals come home, there is a wonderful celebration, isn't there? Ah, oh, as we welcome them with open arms. But we, we have to take sin seriously. Third, verses 6 through 8. Failing to take sin seriously will bring serious consequences. So there's, there's more to this kind of removal uh, than, than just simply rescuing the sinner. That's a big part of it. But there's also the protection of the church. And so I, I realize the application, and this is, if we had time, I would, I'd love to discuss this more, but the application of this, I realize, can sound sort of ineffective to our 21st century years. Uh, you know, in, in, in Paul's context, you can kind of see the, the logic here. The, the church, there was a church, there was a church in Corinth. If you're removed from this fellowship, you go, you know, half a mile that way or, you know, a mile this way, and you'll pass like four other churches. And, and so there's churches everywhere. You just go down the street. And so it seems, in a, it may seem, sound ineffective. It's not. But it's a, in, its effectiveness isn't just measured uh, by how, whether or not that center returns. The effectiveness, it will be effective in protecting the church. And that's that's a big part of this. And so this is what Paul roots his exhortation. In verse 6, he says, Your boasting is not good. Do you, know, do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? We might say a, one bad apple spoils the whole bunch. Um, sin always has a way of spreading and, and contaminating. And so he borrows this metaphor from the practice of Passover, where the, the Jews would eat only unleavened bread. And so after the Passover sacrificial lamb was slaughtered, uh, the, the family then would sweep the house from top to bottom. Every cupboard, every drawer, every nook and cranny would be cleaned out. And, and the goal of this was to remove all of the dust from the house so that all of that possible leaven that could be there, that leavening agent, it could be removed so there's no chance of leaven getting into that dough. And the idea is because it, it just takes a little to impact that lump. And so even, even, if it, even though it's unseen and unnoticed, it has this pervasive effect. We understand, I mean, today, one little microscopic virus can cripple a whole body. And so Paul's point, even one Christian's willful, persistent, unrepentant sin, it corrupts the entire congregation. So Paul firmly admonishes them, cleanse out the old leaven. Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump. And then notice what he says, verse 7. This is great. And he says, as you really are unleavened. This is so good. It's so consistent with what Paul writes elsewhere. He's basically laying out what we call in theological terms justification and sanctification here. He says, you really are already unleavened. You are clean positionally. You are holy. You are righteous before God. You are unleavened already. Brothers and sisters, we already are this if we are in Christ. 
Even, even while we are in this sinning state, but, but he also urges the already unleavened church to cleanse out the old leaven. He's saying essentially, be who you already are. Be who you really are. Live out what you already are by the grace of God. And not just individually in our own Christian lives as we, as we discipline ourselves to walk in holiness and clinging to Christ, but corporately together. He's writing to the church as we hold on to one another to walk in holiness and cling to Christ together. Be who we are, church. Because of who we are in Christ, because of what Christ has done, and we're going to come back to that as we take the Lord's table, we must take sin seriously. And if we don't, there will be consequences in the church. <coughs> By that, I don't mean that the, in, in Corinth, if, if they didn't remove this incestuous man, that incest was just going to start running rampant in the church. That's not the idea. But there will grow in that church a low regard for sin, which will result in a low regard for Christ and the gospel. So the old leaven must be removed so as not to contaminate the new loaf. And lastly, in verses 9 to 13, we see <coughs> excuse me, that the sin we need to take most seriously is our sin. It's the sin in the church. I know there can be a temptation in churches to, to take, the churches that take sin, sin seriously, to be consumed with judging sin out there. We're like watchdogs, and we can sniff it out in our neighbors, we can sniff it out in the community, and we can sniff it out in the nation, and, and we can bark and growl and get all riled up about it out there. And we should have concern, brothers and sisters. We should have godly concern for, for decay in our culture and in our community. There's no, there's no question about that. We should be concerned for our nations and, and other nations' moral decline. But ultimately, that's not our responsibility. That's not what we've been given. We care, we pray, we work for the common good, we vote in the United States, but, but what we do have responsibility for is the church. Our job isn't to scrutinize the sins of the culture, it's, it's, it's to shake our finger at the world. Our job is to judge sin in the church. That's where we have to start. And so verse 9, he says, it's developed in these verses. I wrote to you in my letter. There was a previous letter that he had sent to Corinth, one that apparently was misunderstood or deliberately misapplied. But he says, I wrote not to associate with sexually immoral people. And he says, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of the world or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters, since they would, then you would have to go out of the world. And so he's saying, apparently they mistook his, his exhortation and and, and they tried to think, well, isolate ourselves from the immoral people of the world. He says, that, that's, that's crazy. You'd have to depart from the world. His vision for the church isn't one of isolationism. It, 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 I mean, this church at Corinth is made up of people who are, who are living and working in this thriving metropolitan city. They're not to withdraw into their bunkers, but they're to live a countercultural life in the midst of that unbelieving world. And so, so, so... Paul clarifies intention, verse 11. But now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. So when it comes to defiant believers who, who habitually, un, unrepentantly engage in, in this, this sin like this, we're told to remove them from fellowship. 
He's already been said that. But, the, but this removal includes even enjoying a meal together. Now, I know to us that may not ring as, as weighty, but in that culture, it meant so much more than it does in ours. This was, this was to eat in somebody's home was to establish a bond with them. And it was, it was public and everybody knew it. It was this most intimate form of fellowship. And so he's not forbidding Christians from eating in the homes of, of non-Christians. Jesus ate with tax collectors and prostitutes. And, but Paul's forbidding Christians from that direct and public association with people who have these competing identities. They, 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 they're known as a brother or sister on one hand, and yet their, their behavior identifies them as an unbeliever. Don't eat with them. And then he concludes, what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. Our main energies don't need to be spent judging outside, but striving to live lives conformed to our calling inside the church. Taking our sin seriously, living counterculturally as God's flock in this world. Well, I skipped over a couple verses, and I want to come back to them now. And go back to verse 7. In the middle of that verse, he says that Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us, therefore, celebrate the festival, not with old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but, the, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. What is he saying? Right in the middle of this passage, he he anchors the whole text with this. It's the, it's the gospel of the crucified Lamb of God, our Passover, Jesus Christ, that changes everything. It changes everything. Because Jesus, our Passover Lamb, has been sacrificed. He's died and shed his blood for us. We are saved. And now we are in this continuous, lifelong festival of celebration for all that Jesus has done. Now, for the Christian, the, the Christian life is this continual festival. That's the language here. That's the grammar. The let us keep there means something habitual, ongoing, consistent. Let us keep this going. And because of that, the, the leaven of sin is simply not welcome in our lives any longer. It has no place in light of the cross, in light of what Christ has done. What will we refuse to do to seek to make our lives conform to all that he asks of us. There's that great hymn, what one, the, the, When I Survey the Wondrous Cross, and the, the last verse of that hymn says, Were the whole realm of nature mine, that were an offering far too small. And then he says, Love so amazing, so divine, it demands my soul, my life, my all. This is what Paul's saying. It's in view of the wondrous cross, the fact that the Passover lamb, our Lord Jesus, has been sacrificed for us. We say nothing is worth holding back from him. It demands everything. Jesus has died so he can claim it all. And so not, not just of each one of us as individuals, when this he's speaking to the church, he's saying, but all of us together as a church, he's, he's got us. He claims us. The cross changes everything. Let's live in light of the cross. Let's live in light of the grace of God and the love of Jesus Christ who gave all for us. 
And when we do, we will, we will not see sin, brothers and sisters, in our midst as something that's to be played with or trifled at, trifle with or indulged in. And when one of us turns aside and wanders off and, and refuses to come home, we will use every means that the Lord has given us. Every effort we have to bring them back and see them restored. And what, again, what a celebration lies on the other side of repentance. It's glorious. So Paul's asking us in light of the cross to, to really be who Christ died to make us. Unleavened. Holy. Not perfect, to be sure, but striving by the grace of God to live for him as we celebrate this, this lifelong festival with gratitude for the sacrifice of the Passover. Jesus, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed once and for all. And nothing, nothing can be the same again. He has died, purchased us by his blood, and now we are his. And together, we live together as a church under his loving rule. We're going to eat and drink together, and the men are preparing even now. And we'll pass those out in just a moment, guys. But... This table, uh, which is back there in the foyer, but you know, the proverbial table, these elements, the bread and the cup, that they, they're part of our celebration of the festival. This is what the Lord has called us to, is remember Christ, that Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. So, so the, the, the reason, brothers and sisters, we talk about the, the discipline in the church and the, and the removal of the, the sinning brother. The reason is not, it's not punitive. It's not punishment. It's not penal. It's, it's remedial. It's to restore. The reason we can say that is because Christ has already paid in full the penalty of our sin. That's why it's this way. Jesus has paid it all. We sang that. So, so therefore, there's no wrath left. Not a shred. Only love. Only holy love. Yes, hate sin, but it's fatherly love with no mixture of condemnation whatsoever. 